Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Well, today I put out that we would be speaking about mind control AI, uh, commonly known, of course, as artificial intelligence, as well as robotics and transhumanism. Wow, that's quite a big agenda, but let's go for it. Uh, these are subjects that are sort of like hovering around the uh, society in which we currently live. They are beginning to inform the zeitgeist, if you will, of our society. They are uh, both intriguing and menacing, if you could say, at the same time. In a little brief intro I wrote for uh, today's show, I cited Aldous Huxley's The Door of Perception, and just take a listen to this. In Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception brought to our attention the power of perception and how it influences our daily lives. Perception is the raw material of a belief system. A belief system occupies a specific psychosomatic psycho-emotional, body-mind, neural network that lives in our subconscious and sometimes our conscious mind. George Orwell's 1984 shows us how, when this principle is applied to society by, say, a government, this establishes a perceptual framework that can then be normalized and can be declared to be a consensual reality. If this is in service to the people, this phenomenon could be greatly constructive. If used to increase the power of a few over the masses for self-serving purposes, if for destructive reasons, that is, a form of fascism emerges. Granted, many people live in a trance of one sort or another most of their lives, but mind control for self-interested purposes signals an entirely new era. That is the subject for today. So it's really kind of a thing that I look at fairly regularly and at the same time tend to walk away from. It's not that um it's a little it's a little scary, quite honestly. It's a little scary. And when I was reading up on transhumanism especially, I became a bit uh, freaked out. How's that for a phrase? Um, let's start with mind control. Of course, that is a phrase that gives everyone the heebie-jeebies, right? You're going to control my mind? Well, you know, after a fashion what is the great film that is escaping my mind, my uncontrolled mind, um, but the president who is, oh, it's a very famous movie, it'll come back to me, uh, that he is being controlled by powers that are greater than the president, usually economic powers. And um, the phrase of the name of the film has become a, common part of our speech these days. It's a, it's taken on the power of an adjective to describe a certain kind of mind-controlled, uh, 
programmed headset. So just to say about where I personally originally come from with the subject of mind control, it's not the phrase we would use, but in my study of hypnosis, Ericksonian hypnotherapy in particular, and in my study of neurolinguistic programming, there is a fair amount involving the uh, strength of suggestion to embed commands even into the mind slash unconscious of a client and have them do things that are actually for their good, that they have already declared they want to do. But there are certain blocks and through suggestion in a hypnotic state, which is typically an alpha or upper theta state, um, they can bypass the way the conscious mind processes the information, which has them resist or obstruct something that they actually would like on another level to do, to accomplish, but these other matters uh, get in the way. So yes, there is a way of storytelling, which was uh, uh, Milton Erickson's uh, great claim to fame. He had uh, a way of narrating a tale. Some of it might be true, some of it might not, uh, but it had the effect over and again of bringing people to a place of greater health, greater emotional balance, and greater well-being. Because he was using the principles underlying storytelling and the intelligent, refined use of language, sometimes humor, sometimes double entendre, as a way of reaching deep into the unconscious and moving it, nudging it a little bit in this direction, a little bit in that. And before you know it, people were actually complying with what they stated are their own wishes. So please understand, there's a difference between a negative manipulation where, let's say, in this case, a therapist was speaking to a client under hypnosis or even directly straight out for their own ends. Thankfully, that doesn't happen that often. But, you know, the option always is there. Or a practitioner, psychologist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist, counselor, hypnotherapist, would do this all based on what the client has declared they want for themselves. And the practitioner can use language skillfully enough and the art of storytelling well enough that the outcome for the client is realized. Wow. Well, that seems awfully benevolent. Uh, benevolent, it's beneficent. It's lovely. It's a gift. And it is. It is. That's, that's the skill of being a good counselor or therapist or coach if they are, you know, sensitive to language and wordsmithing and uh, know how to construct uh, um, sentences in a way that will 
lead the client into the space of relaxation, of confidence in what's being uh, done, in the sense of well-being, and in that finer, more relaxed, less cortisol-ridden, stressful state, the mind becomes more absorbable, more sponge-like, and can settle in and settle down into a state of comfort so that what may be getting suggested could actually be acted upon. Now, this, of course, is age-old. Every single political leader, even monarchs, um, military leaders, needed to be able to influence and persuade their followers of one sort or another to do what is being requested, demanded in some cases, or suggested. So, um, it's called the art of persuasion. So, of course, there's nothing new to that part of it, not as a um, something that has been utilized for thousands upon thousands of years. I mean, you can even hypothesize a scenario in the jungle when um, men and women were little more than, um, you know, a beast of the jungle, but one sensed danger in one direction and safety in the other and wanted to convince his or her mate uh, to go in and go left instead of right. There had to be some mode of persuasion, you know, in that situation to save everyone's, the clan's life. So you could say that this art has become more and more refined a lot through storytelling uh, and then there have been other techniques that have developed over the years. NLP, by the way, being a body of those techniques as well, as well as Ericksonian hypnotherapy and other methods of hypnotherapy and hypnosis themselves. So there's a, a rather significant body of literature about this. Then... Uh, Freud's cousin, Edward Bernays, in the 1920s, was called the father of PR, of public relations. And he, I don't know what influence his uh, cousin had on him, but he was really rather preoccupied with the unconscious and about appealing to the emotions of people and that appeal then in turn was influencing their decisions. So his work in the development of public relations and spilling into the world of advertising started to get very, very popular and very well liked because he was helping to promote the sales of various products. Edward Bernays, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. And he's credited with being, you know, what would I say, a mastermind of influence. And if you want to call it mind control, you can do that too. But certainly uh, that, that brings up other 
aspects of the actions, we can safely say it's influencing behaviors, influencing attitudes, and influencing outcomes that we can feel safe about saying. And, uh, you know, for instance, I mean, he's credited with the upsurge of women smoking cigarettes. And it is said that he did so uh, not by saying, dear women, we think you should go out and smoke more. Rather, he linked the image of smoking with certain principles or certain desires a woman might have. For instance, back in the 1920s, voting was pretty good, pretty popular among women, the suffragette movement itself. So the idea of freedom, of liberty, women always felt oppressed, and for good reason, they were. And so women smoking became an expression of their sense of independence and autonomy. And so by linking, because the mind is associative, those ideas with smoking through advertising, through language and image, well, there was a major uptick in the number of women smoking. And if you ask them why, they may not even know the answer because it becomes a subconscious phenomenon. They don't say, oh, because it means to me that I'm free or that I'm independent, probably not. But I'm just giving you an idea of the way these things work. In hypnotherapy, we're always using the power of association uh, as a means of helping people therapeutically move from one state to another, linking because we are, you know, a result of behavioral conditioning, you know, and it's just the way it is. We're all a form of Pavlov's dogs. And even if there is, not if, even with the subconscious, as Freud and Jung both posited, still in all, there is, um, I wouldn't call it a blank slate phenomenon, but there's definitely positive and negative reinforcements that are used all the time. So, with that said, we begin to see how um, uh, politicians, business people, PR people, advertising people, uh, good rhetoricians are able to influence individual and collective mindsets. Television is a very powerful tool. Movies, another very powerful tool. Music is another and powerful tool. Anything that is really kind of engaging emotions and when there's also a visual component, it just further reinforces, we can see these kinds of results show up. So, ah, scary stuff when it comes to someone like the election of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, that can be awfully scary. In fact, I really wanted to uh, play you a little something in this regard, and you can kind of see for yourselves, or I should say, hear for yourselves a little bit on this. Just look at what's going on in the domains of uh, 
social media these days and what's called fake news and the way, if you study, the way that these very skilled people have of putting forth a story, connecting dots that are not really there to connect, but they do anyway, that gives a false understanding of what's going on. <clears throat> and that causes confusion sometimes. It causes anger sometimes, an emotional reaction. And lo, before you have it, you have people getting all riled up about a lot of things. I'm going to play you piece on Edward Bernays and the description by one fellow of how Trump, whether deliberately or unconsciously, used some of the principles that have been described by Edward Bernays. Listen in for the next few minutes. Until recently, Donald Trump was known more as a businessman than a politician. In the book Propaganda, published in 1928, Edward Bernays said politics was the first big business in America. Business has learned everything that politics has had to teach, but politics has failed to learn very much from business methods of mass distribution of ideas and products. However, now in 2016, I believe Donald Trump has learned these lessons from his time as a businessman, and they have helped him become the next president of the United States of America. Bernays recognized that it is important to appeal to the wants of the consumer as opposed to merely their needs. In business, this meant that instead of a customer being told how useful a particular product is, the product is presented as fulfilling their unconscious desires. Edward Bernays thought that the best way to communicate this was through newspapers instead of traditional advertising, as people consider news articles to be fundamentally more trustworthy than adverts. He believed that news could and should be created in order to present the public with a version of events that would speak to their desires and guide their choices. Bernays believed that the public relations man is a creator of circumstance. Donald Trump has used Twitter as a medium to achieve a similar reaction from some voters. He uses his Twitter account with skill and is more prolific than most other presidential candidates, overtaking his rival Hillary Clinton for followers in late 2015. He now has over 15 million of them, compared to Clinton's 11 million. The result has allowed him to get his message out there without spending nearly as much money as his opponent, as different media sources such as TV, radio and other social media platforms all do it for him. One tweet he sent on the 8th of November 2016, Today We Make America Great Again, garnered over 350,000 retweets and well over half a million likes. Many politicians have used social media in the past to simply amplify their existing message. Trump has used Twitter in a different way to craft his own message. Twitter gives him complete control over his message, and he can send information to his followers in real time. He has used his account to create news, attack rivals, and threaten people that disagree with him. The message is clear and consistent. Donald Trump is right, and everyone who says anything to the contrary is wrong. Bernays was strongly influenced by theories on the crowd and group psychology. Specifically, he thought groups were impulsive and irrational and that the general public could not be trusted to make reasoned decisions. He believed that there needed to be invisible wire pullers with whom power needed to rest with. These wire pullers could then direct people to the right decision. This mentality applies to politics as well as products. 
His book Propaganda opens with a statement that the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organised habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Bernays himself applied public relations to politics. When he worked for United Fruit, the American company that traded in tropical fruit in Central and South America, he ran a campaign against Jacobo Arbenz, the Guatemalan president at the time, in the American media. Arbenz wanted to implement land reform in his country and take 40% of the land owned by United Fruit to use it in a way that benefits the overall public. Bernays convinced major US media outlets to publish propaganda stories about Arbenz, branding him as a communist and a serious threat to the United States. Bernays also ran United Fruit's anti-communist campaign. The aim of this campaign was to influence American President Dwight Eisenhower to intervene in Guatemala. This he did when he authorised the CIA-backed coup in the country in 1954, which overthrew Arbenz. Donald Trump questioned Hillary Clinton's health throughout his campaign, repeatedly claiming Clinton didn't have the strength or stamina for the presidency. On several occasions, he has said Clinton is unbalanced, unstable and totally unhinged, which has also been picked up by several media outlets. The aim of his campaign was to convince the public that she was not fit for office, and his campaign was ultimately successful. Edward Bernays also used fear to sell products. When he worked for a company that made disposable cups, Bernays launched a campaign to scare people into thinking that only disposable cups were hygienic. Trump used the politics of fear in his campaign, and it was key to his election victory. When speaking about immigration, Trump summoned fear in two different ways. Firstly, he described directly the potential threats to the public, citing attacks on police and terrorism in the cities of America. He also played on the fear of people by being more abstract in his fear-mongering, often using phrases such as, there's something going on. Bernays believed that people were inherently stupid and that they could be easily persuaded, not by rational thought, appealing to their emotions. Trump has appealed to the emotion of fear and made it the cornerstone of his campaign. The Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2016 was announced as post-truth. It is defined as an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The word has been around for a decade, but has been used much more frequently since both the EU referendum in the UK and the US presidential election. Donald Trump is an expert at post-truth politics. He has connected with people emotionally, often with limited facts to back up his views. This method of connection, as Edward Bernays explained nearly a century ago, has worked successfully in 2016 and is so powerful that it has led to a man who has never been elected into any political office becoming the 45th President of the United States of America. Well... So you can hear about some of how when the principles, the underlying tenets that someone like Edward Bernays put forth are expressed and utilized by someone like Donald Trump, whether, as I said, deliberately or unconsciously, uh, it can have what I would call deleterious effects. <laughs> That's what I think is happening. Um there are other influences there on him that I have described many times. And uh, since I mentioned him, I will say another word or two. And 
Uh, these are bullying tactics that have been used in schoolyards forever uh, and used also by mobs forever, such as such as uh, the Italian mafia, no doubt other types of mafia everywhere in the world. It's bullying, intimidation, threat, uh, minimizing, criticizing, reducing, name-calling. Um, these are all things, if you look at Trump's behavior from when he was seeking the Republican nomination all the way through. He had names, epithets for everybody. Um, crooked Hillary, Lying Ted, uh, Little Marco. You know, everybody got a little name, you know. And in this way, it's a diminutive, of course. It's a way of diminishing somebody and making them into a thing and an object of ridicule. And, you know, of um, an eight or nine or ten-year-old in the schoolyard of a bully, you'd expect that. Uh, but of uh, from a grown man running for president, you would pray that there would be nothing like that anywhere nearby. I mean, the politics of running for president and the advertising campaigns on even you know on uh, congressional levels as well is become so debased over the course of many decades it makes our our skin cringe but this last time of course just takes the cake <clears throat> there's been nothing ever that i know of in U.S. history, like it, just nothing. It is so coarse and so gross and so embarrassing for grown men, so-called adults, supposedly mature in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s, acting like, like misbehaving children. There are children that act more mature than this guy we now have as president. And what he does is he brings everybody down into the gutter with him uh, because even with the phrase, when he goes low, we go high, you can do that to some extent. But overall, because there's an emotional appeal uh, that everyone relates to on that more grosser level, that coarser level, um, they often win because rational thinking is not really what governs us. The reptilian brain and the amygdala is what governs us by and large. But if we can see that, if we can stand outside of ourselves and see, sorry, I have a little bit of a cough, uh, what part of our brain is activated, it gives us some leverage and objectivity toward our reactions to the information flowing in. But without that, we're lost. We're lost like a puppy dog. So I wanted to bring that forward. I say he won for reasons that I just described. Bullying, name-calling, 
diminishing others, having an epithet for everybody, speaking pompously and brashly about things he actually knows almost nothing about, and making an appeal to people that he's going to turn it around. He has nothing to do with with uh, Washington, with the so-called swamp, and he's going to clean it up like he's an outsider. And he's also can be funny and charming in his own way. And we New Yorkers are very familiar with this kind of rhetoric and kind of behavior and attitude and humor. This is part of the New York culture, quite honestly. But when you take that out of New York, well, people are like a bit dazzled and often impressed. And wow, we they're smart. By the way, Bernie Sanders got some of that benefit also, but I would call that on the good side, without without uh, insulting people, without hurting people, without dragging his opponents through the mud. To the contrary, but he, he has that kind of dry New York sense of humor, if you know what I mean, and accent. I mean, he's a tough guy, really, from Brooklyn. You know, he was raised very modestly economically, and he had to scrape to live, and it teaches you. It's a form of survival, urban survival, and he did it well, and he was of an ethnic group back then, the Jews. There were the Jews, there were the Italians, there were the Irish, there were the Poles. This was New York, (laughs) you know, and then there were the elite which were, of course, you know, the white, upper-crust Anglo, for the most part, Protestant, Christian of one sort or another. I'm generalizing a bit, but not a whole lot. There were these sorts of factions, let's just say. And um, people who were scrappy, and people who were intelligent, and people who were disciplined, and who people who were committed, many of whom happened to be Jewish and Italian and Irish, and they then made something of themselves. They got themselves educated. They got into business. They got into comedy. They got into science. They got into music. They got into uh, banking, whatever. And um, they have gone on from all these ethnic groups um, to be brilliantly successful into politics. So from my point of view, and this funnily just came up uh, this morning, uh, is, you know, about what the world would be like if, um, if, if Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, for those of you who are Americans or Canadians or those of you from out of town and out of the country who know something about the inside workings of what happened in the Democratic nomination process, Back then, in, you know, uh, May, June, July of 2016, or whenever it was that they had their convention, um, that Bernie Sanders was basically manipulated out of winning the nomination for being the Democratic presidential candidate. He was on course for winning. He had the young vote, he had the millennials, and he was getting almost no airtime because the ratings did not soar when he was on TV. He's too much of a true straight shooter. He's too authentic. But there's 
that wise guy. And and Hillary Clinton's not sassy enough or sexy enough or funny enough or engaging enough. She's kind of vanilla on a personality level. But Trump, oh my God, even his hair is colorful. You never know what you're going to get with this guy. Totally unpredictable. Nasty as they come. Lies through his teeth. Anything to make an effect. He did that for years on his uh, uh, TV show, The Apprentice. It doesn't matter what bluster comes out of your mouth, as long as bluster comes out. It has no relationship to the truth. None. It's got nothing to do with truth. It has to do with bluster and bullying and making a point and being loud and brash and brassy. And that, my friends, is what engages the emotions and gets people riveted. And that is what drove up ratings, his unpredictability, and you never knew what was coming out next. And he keeps everybody in a scramble, and he promises things he can never fulfill, and he forgets that he promises them one day, and people are being held in suspense for the other day. He is a really good storyteller, full of fiction, full of deception full of lies and well you know add a few pinches of salt and a few more of pepper and you've got a stew you've got a trump stew spilling out and making a mess everywhere driving up ratings making the tv stations a ton of money and um bernie sanders gets marginalized uh, the Clinton campaign and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the uh, president of the Democratic uh, National Committee, are in cahoots. They minimize and marginalize Bernie, including the votes, and they basically gerrymander and tweak and cajole and manipulate so that he loses and she wins. And I'm saying that if Hillary Clinton and Wasserman Schultz did not do that, for which they should be fully prosecuted according to the full extent of the law from my point of view, much more onerous than whatever she may have done with emails, although that stands on its own. Uh, this is truly, ultimately a crime against humanity of a very high order because all in all polls, all indications showed that Bernie would beat Trump. He had a real following, not a fake one, and um, he had a massive appeal uh, also to the working class because he was such an advocate and is such an advocate to this day. Anyway, that's a whole other thing, but you're getting the point about the art of persuasion and the art of, um, of uh, you know, you could call it mind control. That's a scarier phrase. God knows. Anyway, I want to just remind you all, you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., although I know you all listen whenever you want, as well you should. Um, and I do hope that you pass this link around to your friends and family and um foes and uh, your lovers and uh, everybody else. 
so they can get the benefit of this kind of thinking, this kind of information, and God willing, also this kind of inspiration. And please visit our website, www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, and sign up for our free newsletter. It's a lot of fun. It comes out only once a week. It announces who will be on the TV show Monday evenings at 7 p.m., New York time, Eastern Standard Time, uh, which you can watch from that same website, and it announces uh, what we'll be talking about on the radio show, whether I'll be doing a show uh, myself, as in tonight, or um, a show with guests or a roundtable, as I frequently do. So with all that said, let's take a look at the transhuman. This is, for me, also scary. It is scary. It is not desirable, but it is something that's happening because what we're really, what is transhumanism? Well, you know, it could be cited to have started many, many moons ago. Um, uh, One source says that it sort of traces back to the 1960s when the idea of what is being a human came into question. And there are many reasons for that. You could even look at medicine. You could look at uh, super nutrients. You could look at even, you know, super athleticism. Things that are radically changing the state of mind, the state of consciousness, the state of the body of a human based on certain activities or certain, as I said, you know, nutrients or foods or drugs for that matter, right? Um, I mean, the reason that certain drugs are banned from the Olympics is because it makes these athletes into super athletes, superhumans, able to do things that you couldn't otherwise do. Well, where do we draw the line between what we can do naturally or natural and what we can do when we are engaging in certain other effects, let's just call them? You know, uh, and let's, uh, it's interesting that nutrition is not one of those things that has been cited as, as far as I know, uh, as something that would uh, so extremely ramp up a person's, let's say, athletic performance that it would be banned. But I believe really truly that that can potentially happen. Uh, When we talk about transhumanism, we're talking about things like being chipped. And everybody pretty much knows what that is, right? I mean, it's not pretty, but uh, they started with animals. They started with a story about dogs. Don't ever lose your dog. And that moved into children. Don't ever lose your child. We're going to put a chip in your child in the hospital when the child is born, and that, of course, assumes a uh, hospital birth, which is nowhere near as desirable as a home birth, Um, but we're talking about the state right now, and so if a chip is implanted beneath the skin, transdermally, um, subcutaneously, then that acts as a tracking device. But these days, it can also act as an information device of all sorts, you know, medical records and all of that stuff, criminal records, what have you, like a little storage archive on the individual. 
but it also can give information. It can give access, let's just say, like your cell phone does, to Google or to another browser where in a minute you if you can get do a calculation a mathematical calculation uh using a device that you could not possibly do in your own head without that device so all of a sudden um a, a student in elementary school could have access to everything that's online in a moment as opposed to studying and learning and going through that process. But, of course, that's the process of being human, of learning, of growing, of evolving, of using one's brain and one's mind and making connections, and that's the excitement of intellectual growth, stimulation, creativity. That's where it lives. But if you're plugged in to devices, well, you're sort of short-circuiting your own activity. And, well, you could say, well, uh, that gives you a chance to operate on another level of activity. That may be true, but at what expense? So this whole domain, I like to think of it as super nutrition or superfoods, super athleticism, um, and then the technology, be it chipping or AI or other types of robotic type of interface with humans is literally changing the landscape of what it is to be human. Ah! What do we think of this? If any of you are out there listening live, you are welcome to call in to 602-753-1860. That's 602-753-1860. And if not, no worry. Um... I am just laying out some of the details of, and this is just a sketch, just a bit of a sketch. Now, the film I was thinking of earlier was The Manchurian Candidate, by the way. Now, it's true, I have to admit, this is a case in point. I did not remember the name of the film, but I came up with the phrase, the program's president, the film, and it brought up the Manchurian Candidate right away, made in 2004, which was a remake of a much earlier version of it that was really excellent and scary. Um, the, the 2004 version was with Denzel Washington and Meryl Streep, and if you haven't seen it, it's really worthwhile because it's such an education about who is pulling the strings around here, and what is it that we need to know and be on the lookout for. Of course, Aldous Huxley, mainly in Brave New World, George Orwell in 1984, was giving us the, um, the wake-up call about all of this way back, about what could be our future, science fiction. Isaac Asimov has picked up you know, the the pieces and laid out any number of different types of human or humanoid types of beings that are emerging. Then we have the entire other advent of the extraterrestrial, those beings, intelligent beings, 
on other planets that are beginning to mix and mingle with humans and said to have been around here forever. You have the work of Zacharias Sitchin, uh, looking all the way back to the times of the Epic of Gilgamesh and Sumer um, as being a time of a major extraterrestrial transmission, the Nephilim, uh, on the planet Earth that infused us with that kind of intelligence which allowed humans to take a major cultural leap forward in their understanding and their relationship to technology and craftsmanship to move everything forward in a much more robust, comprehensive way. Well, you know, take that up to 2018 folks, where we are today, where we just had uh, some astronauts, uh, we had, a, I'm sorry, a um, a satellite just land on the moon two days ago. I mean, what's that about, bad, you know? And in any event, uh, we've been said to be a hybrid of a species anyway, that back in, uh, you know, Sitchin's purview, uh, we were basically implanted by extraterrestrial sperm, I guess, um, and genetically modified and manipulated to be slaves for the mining of precious resources that others of other planets or solar systems wanted, and we were used for the harvesting. Um, And yet we had a modicum of intelligence um, and of independence uh, beyond the animals that gave us this unique ability to both be enslavable but also independent. I don't think they wanted the independence part, but they couldn't breed it out of us. So uh, the story of human manipulation um, and hybriding and genetic modification and the like is an old one. It goes back many, many, many thousands of years. And believe what you will, there's different evidence for different aspects of the story. Um, I'm not here to spell that out or provide evidence as such, but rather to stimulate some thought about this whole consideration and also say it's not new. I think it's been amplified and it has grown uh, exponentially over the past 25, 30 years because of the growth and expansion of technology, AI, and robotics, um, and, uh, and medicine, actually. Um, advances in medicine and genetic engineering. I mean, just the other day, uh, it was a Chinese doctor who, using CRISPR gene editing, um, was said to have gone into these two twin infants and um, made them uh, utterly immune to AIDS. Is it true? Is it not true? Is it ethical? Is it not? Those are all really important questions. But it looks like we've got the technology to do exactly this now. Hence, the conversation about transhumanism becomes all the more uh, relevant and to the extent that if I can find it um, where is that where did that go 
there was a whole thing I found on um, transhumanism, and it was actually a party. It was a political party, and they had their own. Um, they had their own uh, party. A Bill of Rights. Very interesting. That is transhumanist politics. It's called the Transhuman Party. Oh my God! This is like awesome. And look, I wanted to bring this up because I don't want us to be caught uh, sort of um, blindsided. Uh, these are trends. These are movements that are underway. I would say that I'm probably a bit more old-fashioned. This kind of thing doesn't really appeal to me all that much in many ways. Uh, mainly, I would say, because uh, I like au natural, I like biology, um, and I love technology, too. Um, but I feel very wary about the interface of us with it, because mainly of the potential for negative use and manipulation, self-interested use. I just don't think humans have grown up enough to use this kind of technology prudently and maturely. Just don't. And I unfortunately have ample evidence for that. Uh, if we did not have wars no more, as the song would say, if we did not have wars no more, if we did not have environmental pollution and uh, what we call global warming denialism, if we didn't have hungry children across the richest and poorest nations of the world, if we were not an oil-based economy but a photon and wind-based economy because it's all the only thing that really makes sense, if we did not use plastic, if we really were loving and supportive and creative with each other and lived lives of integrity and nobility and virtue, if all of these were standard fare for the human race, for the human species, that would be a different story. I would say, let's go so deep into technology that, wow, let's just do it and go down that rabbit hole and see what happens. You know, But that's not the case. We don't have responsible leaders. We have self-interested leaders all over the world, not just here. And our own history shows that most of our leaders also were plagued by the same illness of self-interest, with some exceptions. I see Jimmy Carter as an exception, quite honestly. I see Dwight Eisenhower as an exception. I see FDR as an exception. But there aren't that many. I would say Abraham Lincoln as an exception. Uh, I think there are some exceptions over time. But they are exceptions out of 45 people. You know, that's like all of uh, four. <laughs> ratio isn't that great um, and that's just here I mean if we go to uh, what the Philippines or Russia or Brazil you know I, I mean all over Africa we see some of the most horrendous dictatorships over and again of self-interested parties if you know even if a dictatorship was benevolent I'd say hey great you want to make all the decisions yourself. I don't think that's the greatest form of uh, uh, greatest political structure. But you know what? 
if you're going to be making decisions that are truly in service of your people, hey, go for it. I'm okay with it. I am not ideology sensitive when it comes to these things. I am emotionally and psychologically sensitive to making right choices and decisions for the for the good, for the common good, for the commons, as it said, for the public welfare. So, uh, robotics, just a word about that. Of course, it's fascinating. These things, bizarre at best. Um, some co- countries are humanizing them and uh, probably using them eventually, and in some cases now as sex toys. Uh, but, of course, they don't have hearts. They don't have emotions. They don't have minds. They are just all a bunch of circuitry. Um, but uh, uh, they can also provide tremendous value. They can go in places like uh, 60 Minutes just did a show uh, with Leslie Stahl on these robots going into the Fukushima uh, plant to locate the nuclear fuel because they can't find it and humans can't stand anywhere near it. So robots can do that. I think that's fabulous. What a very fine use of robotics and technology. So technology is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It can be intimidating. I think we need to go into nature and spend a lot of time there. We have to get away from our cell phone. I do not carry my cell phone on my body ever. I have it in a bag away from me, and that's the way I do things. Um, Anyway... We have to be very mindful of these things and really take so much these days into consideration. So uh, economically, of course, robots are replacing a lot of humans all over the world, millions of jobs. So uh, that's another thing we have to be sensitive to. But it's kind of interesting. It may free up people to do uh, another type of job, another kind of contribution to society and maybe we can get to a point where we don't have to be doggy dog about money all the time everyone would have plenty of it because it really didn't matter because our resources are so abundant which they actually already are that every one can have a lovely home and plenty of healthy food and plenty of electricity and flowing water that's utterly clean and nutritious. We have all of the resources to do this. But, again, it's that small, greedy mind, that immature mind of presidents across the world, here and elsewhere, and the, and the uh, small-mindedness of so many captains of industry that we have been contracted and squashed, shrunken, shrunken heads, Um, and we don't have this kind of society where everyone is fed, everyone has the medical help that they need, people were responsible for their own health, um, and yet there would be universal health care for those who actually needed something, but that we would have a real real, uh, emphasis on self-care, by eating well, by sleeping well, by exercising a lot, by having lots of fun, making lots of music, being very comedic. These are ways of building culture, building fun, 
that keeps the blood flowing, that keeps the chi flowing, that keeps the heart beating and the soul activated. When people feel they are connected to community, to meaning, that's meaningful, to be connected to community and to be able to live from that space. These are ways of helping health. It's epigenetic. It's intelligent. We understand it. We understand the role, a lot, of the role of mind on body, on healthy thinking, on imagination. Whoa! We're sort of like walking parties, but we're living as though we have the intelligence of a baby toe. It's just crazy. But, so be mindful about mind control um, and be mindful of artificial intelligence running you down. Beware of chipping and that negative aspects of transhumanism. I know I just gave you a, a taste of it all, but I wanted to sort of introduce some fundamental ideas so we are all on the same page. We're not going to be blindsided with some of these thoughts and ideas and that we can remain open and conscious as the wheels of society and the wheels of the economy keep changing and turning. Um, so because it's not about what's rational, it's about, unfortunately, what makes money and what can sell. And that, my friends, is what runs our world, sadly and hopefully not tragically. So on that note, I want to just thank you all for listening. If you need coaching or counseling services, contact me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, or call 212-420-0800. I can do and have done sessions with people across the world by Skype, by Zoom, by phone. And uh, we also have other energy balancing services, biofeedback, and the like. We are a 501c3. We are a nonprofit. Your contributions to us help keep us alive and growing and, and sustaining on the air. So please, please, if you are able to, either buy our products or utilize our services or just make a straightaway donation investment in a better world. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.